The tombstones tell stories. Tombstones tell stories. I was freshly reminded of that Friday as I found myself walking through a cemetery for a burial service. I'm not sure about you, but whenever I walk through a cemetery, and that's not something I do on a regular basis, when I have to, I, I always take notice of the inscription on the headstones as I walk through a cemetery. You begin to wonder as you read each inscription, what's the story behind what you read? I mean, sometimes you see two people's names side by side, both seemingly having lived long lives together as a married couple. You wonder maybe, what was their marriage like? You wonder when you see from the dates on the headstone that one lived longer than another. What those 10 years without their spouse must have felt like as a widow. Or, or you see a tombstone like I, like I saw Friday where the person was, was born not too long ago and is dead already in their teens. You feel the sadness of it just looking at those dates. Someone born in their late 90s shouldn't be dead already. A special sadness fills your heart when you read the, the note on the tombstone from their parents. In loving memory of our dear son. You wonder what happened? How did he die so young? How terrible must his parents have felt when it happened? How terrible must they still feel seeing that their child is gone? Tombstones tell stories. Now, imagine that you're walking through a cemetery and you see a tombstone with your name on it, with your exact birth date followed by a date of death. How could this be? I'm alive. I mean, I'm breathing. I'm walking. But what if that sense of breathing of walking, of being alive is really just a fathom of your imagination? What if in reality you were dead? What happened? How did it happen? And how could you be so fooled into thinking that you were vibrantly living? Friends, in our passage this morning, the Apostle James puts us in a similar scenario. Not as it relates to physical life, but spiritual life. And in our passage this morning, he's trying to keep us from thinking we're spiritually alive, when in reality, we might just be dead. How does one get there? But if you have your Bibles, turn with me to James chapter 2. James chapter 2, and as we continue our study through this letter of James, we find ourselves this morning in the last half of chapter 2, verses 14 through 26. James chapter 2, verses 14 through 26. If you're using one of the Bibles under the chairs, you can find it on page 1012, 1012. James chapter 2. So I didn't get verse 14. James says, 
what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace and be warmed, be filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. <laughs> show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. Y you believe that God is one. You do well. But even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Well, was not our father Abraham justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab, the prostitute, justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For, for as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works, is dead. Here's what I think is the main idea of James chapter 2, verses 14 through 26, the main idea of the sermon this morning. A faith that has no good works is a no good faith that no true Christian should claim. A faith with no good works is really a no good faith that no true Christian should claim. Or to put it a different way, a more positive way, a true Christian is one whose faith in God produces faith-filled deeds. As we walk through this passage this morning, we'll hang our thoughts around two main emphases we, we see in this text, or two points. Number one, we see a denial, a denial that faith apart from works is worth anything. A denial that faith apart from works is worth anything. We see that in verses 14 through 17. And then point number two, we see a demonstration that faith accompanied by works is what matters. A demonstration that faith accompanied by works is what matters. We see that in verses 18 through 26. So number one, a denial that faith apart from works is worth anything. And number two, a demonstration that faith accompanied by works is what matters. Number one, a denial that faith apart from works is worth anything. We get that idea of worthiness, a uh, faith not worth anything from James here. 
You see, he starts off in, in verse 14 asking, what good is it? If someone says he has faith but does not have works. And he, he brings up the point again at the end of verse 16. As you, you see there, he talks about a faith devoid of actions, asking again, what good is it? That word good there means of what value is it? Uh, what is that kind of faith worth? It's the same word that is used in Matthew chapter 16, verse 26 by Jesus. When he asked, what does it profit a man or benefit a man? What good is it to him if he gains the whole world but forfeits his soul? All the gains of the world are worth nothing if you lose your soul in trying to attain them. Well, James takes the same idea and relates it here to a fruitless faith. What good is it? What benefit is it if someone says he has faith but not works? Can that faith save him? Now, we'll explore this as we go along, but, but James is not denying here saving faith. We've seen so far that James affirms and echoes the, the sentiments of big brother Jesus, his Lord and Savior in this book. He's not now all of a sudden going against the grain of Jesus. I mean, it was Jesus who spoke the, the famous words of John 3.16 that, that God so loved the world, that he sent his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him, has faith in him, should not perish, but have eternal life. Or John 3.36, where Jesus says, whoever believes in the Son has life. And so we see time and again in the Bible, we are saved by having faith in Jesus Christ. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, by grace you have been saved through, through faith. James is not denying that. What James is denying is that a certain kind of faith, if it can even be rightly called faith, can save you. Notice at the end of verse 14, he labels it that faith. Can, can that faith save a person? A faith without works is what he's talking about. The assumed answer is no, it cannot. A workless faith is worthless. And to prove his point, James gives us a picture. It's similar to what he did in our passage last week. Where at the start of chapter 2, in verse 1, James sets out a principle. We are to show no partiality. And then he follows it up with a picture, with an illustration in verses 2 through 4. Well, here he does the same thing. He, he wants us to visualize, to experience how futile a faith without works really is. He says in verse 15, If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body. What good is that? What benefit has that done to merely say something without doing something? The illustration puts the focus again on the local church. Just as James's illustration in verses two through four earlier did. Only the setting here isn't necessarily the church gathering the the assembly. Well, how do we know then that James is talking about the church? Well, because of the terms he uses. A brother, sister. 
not physical brothers or sisters, but brothers and sisters in the faith, in the family of God. And James just assumes with all the other New Testament writers that Christians in the same spiritual family, in the same local church, will see and support one another outside of just the weekly gathering. These are people with whom you'd have close communion with. So much so that James says on any day when someone was lacking in daily food, not just a Sunday, they'd be able to come to you as a church member and ask you for help. Friends, this isn't necessarily the main point of the passage, but again, just notice how church-shaped, how church-member-oriented the Bible is. And ask yourself, is your life as a Christian as church-shaped, as church-member-oriented as what the Bible presents? Do you understand the other members of this local church as your brothers and sisters? Do you talk with them throughout the week? Do they have access to you? Do you have access to them? In the illustration here, a a brother or sister comes, which just shows that the the church is made up of believing men and women, equal in standing. There is no partiality among God's people. And this brother or sister comes and is in need. They have on shabby, tattered clothing. They lack daily food. In James's day, folks didn't have leftovers in the fridge. One needed provisions every day, and this person has none. The picture is someone in poverty, in need. And you see their need and respond with words. And not the welcoming words of some warm grandma when she sees people in need. Get in here and let me get some clothes on your back and put some food in your belly. Any of you ever had a grandma that that seems to have a huge heart for the whole neighborhood? No, your words, when you see a brother or sister in need, are are not get in here. Your words are get out of here. Go away. Only you say it a a little nicer, a, a little sweeter. You know, us Christians can cozy up our coldness. Go in peace, brother, sister. Go be warmed and be filled. Maybe before you send them away, you you say a quick prayer with them to, to spiritualize the whole encounter and to soothe your conscience. You close your eyes and you, you put your hand on their shoulder. And, and you feel their cold body shivering as you pray, Lord, Grant this dear sister a warm place to stay tonight. You you raise your voice and pray more loudly to drown out the growing growls of their stomach. I mean, they're hungry. They're lacking in daily food. And so you close your eyes and you pray, Lord, give us this day our daily bread. You say amen. And you follow it with a cheerful charge. Be warmed. Be filled as if you're sure that God's going to answer your prayer for this brother, for this sister, through some means other than you. And then you send them on their way and close the door to your warm house. 
as you step back inside to enjoy a warm meal with your real family. You say all the right things, James says in verse 16, without giving the person the things they really needed, the things needed for the body. What good then is it that you said something to them? You said the right words, but they're still cold and they're still hungry. So also, James says in verse 17, is a faith that only lives in words, that doesn't follow with actions. A a faith by itself, when someone merely says he has faith, if it does not have works, is a dead faith, a functionless faith. A mere profession of faith is as useless as mere words are for someone who's cold and hungry. Your words mean nothing if not followed by actions. Your faith means nothing if not followed by actions. James and all of Scripture really place on believers a responsibility to live out our faith. And one of the direct ways we are to care for uh, one another or to show that we live out our faith is by caring for one another, caring for those in need among us. We are responsible for one another. And when we fail to provide for and care for one another, it seriously calls into question what we mean when we say that we have faith. What kind of faith are you talking about? Faith in who? Faith in Jesus? Really? Well, think of what Jesus said and did. I mean, when you read verse 16, I wonder if you think of Jesus' words in in Matthew chapter 25, verses 34 through 40, of what will happen at the judgment, where God will bless or curse certain people based on what they've done, based on how they've cared for or failed to care for others. Jesus says, some will be blessed by my father and inherit the kingdom. Why? For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will say, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? When did we see you thirsty and give you drink? Or when did we see you naked and clothe you? Jesus says, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. As you did it to to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. James says, a brother or sister comes poorly clothed and lacking in daily food. What do you do? Do you provide for them or put them off? Well, just know that you're doing that to Jesus. The Jesus you claim to have faith in. Now, to be very clear, this passage here in James, calling for congregational care, does not absolve people from personal responsibility. Let me say that again. This passage in James here calling for congregational care does not absolve people from personal responsibility. I mean, some people consider the church a social service. You get in a bind, 
And the church is just supposed to bail you out, to provide for your need, regardless of if you've been lazy and not working or wasteful and mismanaging your money. No, this passage isn't meant to be used as ammunition to fire off at all Christians for having a kind of phony faith if they don't always help you out. If you keep this passage in your back pocket, so when you ask somebody for something in the church and they say no, you're like, oh, but James say, you ain't got real faith. It could be that you are the one who have a phony faith. One that says you believe in Jesus, but, but, but doesn't work either. Physically. I mean, you can't cling to believe in this passage. You love James 2, 14 to 26. And ignore passages like 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 10. That if a man is not willing to work, let him not eat. Or passages like 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 8. If anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. No, one of the ways you show yourself to be a true Christian is by you personally committing to do what the Bible calls you to do in whatever spheres the Lord has put you in. So if you're single and able, work to provide for yourself. If you're married and able, especially men, work hard to provide for your spouse. If you have children, work to provide for them. Young man, I want you to to, to own that especially. Don't be some young man who's always going to be kind of leaning on other folks, making excuses. Go work. Go provide. Go do something. God has made us to work. That's not first and foremost other church members' jobs. That's your job. But if you are truly in need, there are times when you work hard and you still have needs. Or when you see others truly in need among you, James wants us to know that there is a responsibility for church members to care for one another, to put some feet to our faith. That that doesn't mean that you can't care for other people out there, that you can't care for world hunger or for homeless people in our city. But it means that that care is cultivated first among the congregation. The local church is something of a training ground for political and social engagement. To quote Jonathan Lehman in in an article he wrote, he says, members must learn to live as a transformed nation before they try to transform the nation. Members must learn to live as a redeemed culture before they talk of redeeming the culture. These kingdom citizens must receive training to care about welfare policy as we give to the needy in our midst, to study tax policy as we consider a church budget and our own giving to it, to understand family policy by helping one another's marriages and education policy by caring for one another's children, to consider race politics as we struggle to repent of our own partialities. And so it goes. In other words, the Lord gives us concrete ways to put our faith into action in our local churches. And 
we exhibit such faith here, when we exhibit such faith here, it should then spill out out there. But, but if we fail to do it here, among each other, then it has no integrity out there in the world. Don't tell me you really care about world hunger if you don't care for the hungry people in your own congregation. Don't tell me you're really upset with partiality if you're being partial to people the Lord puts in your life every single day. So saints, consider, does your profession of faith have integrity here in our local church? What ways is your faith working in our congregation? I'm encouraged as I consider the many positive examples in the life of our church. From the faithful giving that you do from week to week to week to support the ministry here. To the behind the scenes provision of funds that many of you give to help those who are in need. By giving to our benevolence fund or by providing funds directly to those who are struggling. Or by providing for the spiritual needs of other members. A number of you meet up with other members to study the Bible or to counsel one another, to help one another follow the Lord Jesus Christ. Keep doing that. If you, like James's illustration, see a brother or sister in need of spiritual growth, don't just say you could really use some growth in this or that area. No, you help them grow. Do good to them while it's in your power to do so. All of us can call out stuff. How much of us will commit to caring for a brother or a sister? That's what genuine Christians do. Good works flow from the good work Christ has done for us and in us. He considered our needs, our greatest need, salvation. Salvation from sin. And he didn't just say, go, be saved. No, he came and he saved us. He came to earth and he lived the perfect life of obedience to God that we should have lived. And then he laid down that life and he picked up a cross and he died the death from the wrath of God that we deserve to die. He got up from the grave, ascended into heaven and commands us all to turn from sins and to trust in him alone. And when we do, he gives us his spirit to live in us. A new heart that the spirit works in, causing us to live as Jesus lived, to love as Jesus loved, sacrificially for others. Don't just say you have faith in him. Show it. That leads to our second point where we see a demonstration that faith accompanied by works is what matters. Number two, a demonstration that faith accompanied by works is what matters. You know, you you can spot a good teacher when they not only make a case for something, but can also anticipate and address any potential objections as well. That's what James does here. He stated in verses 14 through 17 his point that a faith without works is dead, is worthless, is no good, is no true faith at all. And he anticipates some pushback. Somebody trying to justify their actions, or rather their inactions. (laughs) That's how we often are, isn't it? Instead of being quick to hear and slow to speak, 
We're instead quick to defend ourselves at the slightest hint of correction. We bypass deep self-reflection in favor of shallow self-defense. Young people, is that how you respond to your parents' correction? To a coach's correction? Christian, is that your first instinct when another member challenges you from Scripture? Did you respond with immediate pushback? James knows us well. He, he notes in verse 18, but, but someone will say, you have faith and, and I, I have works. James imagines an opponent rising up, disagreeing with what he's just said. Voicing, perhaps, that James is stating his case too strongly, being too narrow. I mean, people have different giftings, James, this challenger says. You might, might have faith. And well, I, I might have works. Every Christian need not have both to be a genuine Christian. I mean, not every Christian has the same gifts. Some Christians have the gift of administration. Others have the gift of healing. That's what Paul said. We don't doubt they're genuine believers just because one has one gift and another has another gift. Why then would we expect all believers to possess both faith and works? You can have one and not the other and be okay with God. Really? Really, James says? Well, prove it. Demonstrate it. Show me, James says. Show me your faith apart from your works. What exactly does that look like? Prove to me that there's such a thing as a faith that does not follow with works. Gather up evidence and make a case. And while you marshal up all the evidence that you can find, let me show you what true faith looks like by my works. By showing that faith is always accompanied with works. Demonstration one is in verse 19. James says, you believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. That doctrinal confession there in verse 19, that God is one, was the most central truth affirmed by the people of Israel in the Old Testament. It comes from the great Shema passage in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is, is one. It was recited and prayed daily, morning and evening, by all the ancient Israelites, affirming their belief in Yahweh, the Lord, as the one and only true God, over and above all the supposed competing deities from the pagan cultures around them. And James here, writing to Jewish Christians now, more than a thousand years after Deuteronomy, says that they affirm the same doctrinal statement, that amidst all the competing deities of their day, they still believe that God is the one, the only one. James says that's good. You do well to believe that. Saints, we do well to believe that. There is only one God above all the other supposed gods and idols of our day. He is the only true and living God, the triune God who eternally exists in Father, Son, and Spirit. Don't stop believing that. But don't stop at just believing that. 
Because simply possessing that belief that God is one doesn't make you any different from a demon. They believe the same thing and shudder. They are afraid considering the awesome and powerful presence of God. But that's their only response. Their faith in God and even their fear before him don't produce faith-filled works that show that they truly worship him as God. See, true faith is more than mere intellectual assent to the truths about God. You might believe every single word in the Bible to be true. You might affirm every single article in our church's statement of faith. And that would only put you on par with the devil and his demons who have pure theology but are destined to hell. Because they don't do anything with what they know, with what they believe. Friends, don't be one of those people who come to church for years, for decades, believing all the right things, but continuing to live the wrong way. And we aim to be a church that prioritizes and preaches and teaches sound doctrine. We do not downplay doctrine here. We don't try to water down doctrine. We trust that honors the Lord, that he actually cares how we worship him. He actually cares what we believe about him. But friends, right beliefs must lead to right practice, must lead to rightly repenting of sin and living a righteous life. No matter how much theology you know, there ain't going to be a 120-point doctrinal entrance exam to heaven. Making sure you can perfectly articulate every single theological nuance. It won't be simply about what you know, but what you show. What fruits have been born from such a pure theology? What love, joy, peace. Patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control have been produced from your faith. None? Well, then it's not the right kind of faith. It's more like the kind of faith that demons have. Only with the intellect. A faith that lives in the head but is not treasured in the heart and worked out with the hands. In demonstration one, that faith that produces works is what really matters. Look at demons as a kind of negative example. Don't have their brand of faith. Demonstrations two and three. Look at the Old Testament saints as positive examples. At Abraham and Rahab, look at what their faith produced. James asks this imaginary objector again in verse 20, do you want to be shown, you foolish person? You who object that faith and works are, are actually separable? Do you want to be shown further that faith apart from works is impossible, is useless? Okay, well, first, look at Abraham. Look down again at verses 21 through 24 in your Bibles. James asked, was not Abraham, our father, justified by works 
when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works. And faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God. And it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Now, at first read, your initial reaction might be to reject this. I mean, James seems to be directly countering the Apostle Paul here, who so passionately preached justification by faith alone, not by works. In Romans chapter 3, verse 20, Paul says, By works of the law, no human being will be justified in God's sight. Pretty clear. And if you read all of Romans 4, basically, Paul even uses the same example of Abraham here in pushing forward the notion that one is justified by faith alone. And saying that Abraham was counted as righteous when he believed God, when he had faith, not when he was circumcised by a work. But James here seems to be more in line with Roman Catholic theology than with Paul, with a theology that teaches that justification is by a mixture of faith and works. That is, that one is declared righteous before God because of what they believe and because of what they do. So is James against Paul here? Well, no. No. Our our very understanding of Scripture puts guardrails around us to keep us from error when we read passages like this. This book is God's Word. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21 says that men wrote as God, the Holy Spirit, spoke. And if it's ultimately God's Word, then it can contain no errors and no contradictions. Just as God is pure and true, so must His Word be pure and true. But we also need to look at the human authors who did write Scripture and not assume that all the human authors use the same words the same way. When Paul writes in Romans, for instance, he uses the term justification to note a legal standing before God, a righteous judgment that is made. To be justified in God's sight is for a sinner, even with all his sins, to be declared righteous. Not by his works, which are all unrighteous, but by the work of Christ, who lived righteously for us, by his faith in Christ, who lived for us and died for us and rose again for us, a sinner can be declared righteous in God's sight. God the judge looks at you, looks at me when we put our faith in Christ, and regardless of how we've lived, when we trust in Jesus Christ, God says, not guilty, righteous, perfect in my sight because we're hidden in Christ. It's a one-time declaration when we believe in Jesus. There is no better deal in all the world than that. Uh, No better declaration than anyone can give you than the declaration from heaven on high where God says, not guilty, righteous. That's how Paul uses justification. 
But there's another way in which justification is used in the Bible. It's how James is using it here. Not as a declaration of one's spiritual status as righteous, but rather as a demonstration of one's spiritual status, showing how works display that one truly has been declared righteous already in God's sight. I mean, that's even how Jesus used the word justified. In Matthew chapter 11, verse 19, Jesus says that wisdom is justified by her deeds, by her works. He didn't mean that wisdom is declared righteous by her deeds, using justify as Paul did. He meant that wisdom proves itself. It's shown to be truly present by one's actions or deeds that are produced. He uses justification in the sense that James uses it here. James here is saying in verse 21 that Abraham was justified, shown to be right with God, shown to be truly trusting in God by works. And again, notice the work he points to. Where in Romans chapter 4, when when Paul uses Abraham as an example of justification by faith alone, he points to when Abraham trusted God before being circumcised as a sign of his faith. But here, since James is using justify in a totally different sense, he points to a different action many, many years later to when Abraham offered up his son Isaac on the altar. It points to the account found in Genesis chapter 22, verse 2, where we read that God tested Abraham and told him to offer up his son, his only son Isaac, whom he loved as a burnt offering. And Abraham did it. Now, we know the story. God ultimately stopped Abraham's hand and and spared him from, from having to sacrifice Isaac. But Abraham was willing. He was ready. He believed God. He trusted him so much so that he was willing to give his son's life, proving, demonstrating, showing that his faith in the Lord was real, was genuine. Friends, True faith is never invisible. It always shows up in real life. James says in verse 22, you see it? You see how it showed up in Abraham's life? Faith was active, not dead. Faith was active along with his works. And faith was completed or matured by his works. James's language and example here are interesting. I mean, he picks an incident in Abraham's life when his faith was tested and says his faith showed up through that testing as his faith was completed by his works. If you remember back to chapter one of this book, in verse two, you remember James talking about the testing of your faith, producing something, producing steadfastness or endurance and urging these believers to let steadfastness have its full effects that you might be perfect or complete. Notice the common idea of the testing of faith and that faith producing something and being brought to completeness. God may send severe tests, and how you respond to them will reflect whether yours is an active or dead faith. 
a true or a false faith. Don't say you trust God if you don't obey God and his word through trials. Abraham's works, his obedience demonstrated that he believed God. From his example, James says in verse 24, you see, you are clearly shown that a person is justified, is proved to to be trusting God by works and not by some faith that is alone, that never produces any works of obedience to God. Saints, that's why it's never enough to have simply believed God at some point in the past or to have walked with God at some point in the past. Why your faith in God can't be characterized by merely past obedience. Are you still believing in God now? And is that belief being proven, being put on display by your present obedience to God? I mean, again, consider the example of Abraham sacrificing Isaac, a work that demonstrated his faith. It took place many years after him initially putting his trust in the Lord. And when God told him to do it, he didn't protest, but Lord, I've proved enough already that I believe in you. I've done enough works in the past. No, his faith was shown to be living, active, constant. He continued walking with the Lord all the days of his life, and he wanted to do what the Lord said. Friends, do not let your faith flame out. Do not let your faith flame out. Don't consider that living hard for the Lord now means you can coast later on in life. Sadly, we've seen in many churches, sadly, we've seen sometimes in our own church, people who start off strong, who are on fire for Jesus. They commit to the Lord early or for a time, maybe for a few years, but then they fall off later. They stop doing the deeds that demonstrate they're truly trusting in the Lord. They stop coming to church. They stop caring for the saints. They stop looking to the Bible and obeying what the Bible says. Friends, There is no retiring from a righteous life after a few years. To retire is to retreat, to depart from the faith. To retire is to retract your allegiance to Jesus. Because that allegiance, that you saying that I still trust Christ, that allegiance is shown by your obedience to Christ. It's shown in you living for him. You cannot have one without the other. You can't say I'm a Christian and don't live as a Christian. So saints, encourage one another as long as it is is called today to live as Christians, to keep on trusting in and living for the Lord. Come to Sunday evening services and and share a testimony. It don't have to be something grand and magnanimous. Come share how the Lord has kept you day by day. How the Lord has given you strength to keep on believing in him this week through these trials and how you're showing that you still trust in him by what you've done. How you responded to that argument with your spouse. How you engaged with that neighbor who did something that you weren't pleased with. 
how you are showing that Jesus Christ is still precious to you by putting that faith on display for others. Pray for one another. As you pray for each other and you don't know exactly what to pray, pray that we would be strengthened in our faith and that that faith would be shown through our works, through our actions. Pray that we would live out and obey the Lord's commands just as Abraham did. First, second demonstration, that true faith is always accompanied by works. Abraham. Third and last demonstration, that faith, true faith is always accompanied by works. We see in verse 25, as James point to another, points to another Old Testament figure in, in Rahab, who seems to be an odd example of someone acting out their faith, especially compared to the great Abraham, our father, James has said, right? The father of the Jewish people. I mean, comparatively, think about it. Rahab was a Gentile woman and a prostitute at that. James picks an example from seemingly the lowest level in people's eyes and puts her up as a model for all of us. In the same way as great Abraham was justified by his work of sacrificing Isaac, so she, this Gentile prostitute woman, was justified by her her works. Her faith was shown to be genuine when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. It points back to the events in Joshua chapter 2. And if it's not abundantly clear by now, James expects his readers to read not only his letter, but also the other books from the Old Testament. Saints, that's still the case. We need the entire Bible for our entire Christian lives. All of it is profitable and useful for teaching, for rebuke, for reproof, for correction and training in righteousness. James is calling us in his book to be righteous. How do you be righteous? You need to be trained in righteousness. How are you trained in righteousness? You need the entire Bible. James says you need my letter, you need Joshua, you need Genesis, you need the whole books. And Paul says in, in, in 1 Corinthians 10, right, these things written down in the Old Testament, those, those dry stories that you feel like, oh, weird, Israelites, nuts. Paul says those things are written for our instruction. So that by the encouragement of the scriptures, and he's talking about the Old Testament, he's talking about Leviticus, it's supposed to encourage you to live holy, right? He's talking about numbers, it's supposed to encourage, don't be like the spies who didn't trust in God. Be like Caleb and Joshua who did. All of God's word is meant to encourage us and to instruct us and to train us to live righteously. James keeps pointing back to the Bible. I wonder, is that how you use God's word? Does it sit dormant during the week? Do you pop it open on Sundays? Or is this book living to you? When, when you want to make a case, when you want to know how to live, do you open up God's word? Amen. James says, open the book. Right. Let, let me show you some examples from God's word. We don't need role models in society. We need the Lord. We need your parents. Like, let your parents be your role models. Use the models of the scripture Amen. as negative or positive examples. In Joshua chapter 2, the people of Israel sinned two spies into Jericho to spy out the land before they invade it. And the first person they meet is a prostitute. I mean, you can just see how the story could really go downhill from there, right? They buy themselves, no accountability. 
good night on the town, but these were righteous people. And what they met ended up being a righteous woman. Rahab doesn't invite them in for a fun-filled night. Rahab invites them in to protect them. Right, to, to hide them from the king of Jericho's men who were looking for them to help them avoid being captured. She sends them out another way to spare God's people. And why did she do that? Because she trusted in Israel's God. Rahab told the spies that she and those in Jericho had heard news traveled even back in the Mediterranean land. Right? They didn't have Twitter and email, but it's, God will make himself known. They said, we had heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea when he brought you out of Egypt. He did something impossible. Like, who was that? We had heard how he conquered the great Amorite kings, Og and Bashan, who no one else can beat. We heard your God beat him. We heard about what God had done. And Rahab says in Joshua chapter 2, verse 11, it led me to this confession. The Lord, your God, he is God in the heavens above and in the earth beneath. He's the only real God. Rahab adopted Deuteronomy chapter 6, 4 herself. Oh, even though she wasn't an Israelite, she understood that the Lord, the Lord God, he is one, the only one. She believed he was the only God when she heard what the Lord had done for Israel so far. So that when these two Israelite spies were before her, her faith in the Lord as the only true God was demonstrated as she hid the Lord's people from harm's way. Her her faith wasn't just in, in, in flowery words about God. Her faith was shown, was put on display through her works, as it always is. Friends, saving faith is available to anyone who turns from sin and believes in God. A saving faith that shows up, that shows itself to be a true saving faith throughout life. Whether you're well off like the patriarch Abraham or someone with a wicked past and a wretched reputation like the prostitute Rahab, you can possess and portray true faith. If you're here this morning and your life is a wreck, if you're stuck in some shameful sin, I hope you see from Rahab a reminder that you do not have to stay there. You don't have to be known forever for that wicked sin. You can be known by church members and people in your community and by coworkers and by children and grandchildren and great-great-grandchildren for your living faith. Friends, you can be known by God, commended by him as Rahab is here for your living faith. So live out your faith. First step, if, if you're not a Christian, you need to repent and believe in the Lord Jesus. Do that today, it's urgent. But if you are a Christian, let that faith in Christ fuel faith-filled works in Christ for his glory. Let your light so shine before men that they see your good works and they glorify your Father who is in heaven. 
James closes here by repeating his main theme. Faith apart from works is useless. No good. Dead. He says in verse 26, just as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. So friends, be alive. Live like the Lord has saved you. He has. Live like the Lord is good and powerful. He is. Live like the good and powerful Lord lives in you because he does. He is willing and working in us so that we might work out, might exercise, might demonstrate how great a salvation he's given us and how great a savior he is. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the reminder that we can have no true faith that doesn't follow with works. So Lord, we pray that you would help us. We pray that you would help us to trust in you more deeply, uh, to cling to the cross of Christ as a reminder that all our sins are forgiven, that we no longer have to earn our way to you, that Christ has done everything needed uh, for our approval. And so Lord, let us live then, Lord, to please you. Live in gratitude to what you've done for us in the gospel. Lord, we pray that all of us, Lord, would have lives that commend the gospel, Lord. That our works, Lord, would demonstrate the genuineness of our faith. And that you would, through our lives, bring many others to bow the knee to King Jesus. For those who need to do that today, Lord, work in their hearts. Cause them to believe. Bring them to repentance. Let no one leave, Lord, still dead in their sins. Lord, but make folks alive, not simply in word, but also in deed. Lord, we thank you. We pray that you would help us to live the life you've called us to live for the brothers and sisters you've given us to love. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.